0: Um, there's totally different time time zones um, on this group, so you'll have to go to, you can go to a a uh, um, app called org. zmanim, which means times, which tells you the time of sunrise, sunset, half day, some uh, nightfall, and over there you just type in your zip code, your country. Um, wherever, whatever it is and you'll get the information for you so I can not share with you unanimously for all of us what the time is but tomorrow starts that fast day also important to know is that with tomorrow's fast day begins a begins a three week mourning period and uh, it's the three weeks that it took from when they breached the walls of Jerusalem until they reached um, uh, the Holy Temple. So in this morning period, um, again, uh, I sent out a link in my in my email that went out this week, but you also have, it went out on Monday, I believe, or, yeah, Monday or Tuesday morning. Um, and over there, you have a link or you can just go to Chabad.org, type in three weeks and you'll be able to see what, how the morning period of the three weeks um, spell themselves out. Uh, We don't go on pleasure trips um, or we don't make weddings and so forth and so on. Look into the categories. Also, I want to share with you that these three weeks actually divide into three different morning stages. There's a stage of the three weeks. There's a stage of the nine, nine days, which starts from Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the month of Av, until the ninth day of the month of Av. Then there is the week of the month of August. this this three-day period is going to end with a fast day and this fast day is going to be very unique on one second here this uh fast day is going to be very unique that there's only two fast days a year uh, in the jewish calendar year which starts from the night before and tissue is one of them and it has whole laws of of mourning and not sitting on a chair until half day um god willing we won't be dealing with that god willing mashiach will come and it will turn into a very huge festive day which with a huge with love and peace for all but right now we uh, have to prepare for these three weeks so i do want to share that with you that there's going to be a fast day tomorrow and we're going to go into the three weeks okay with that being said Um, I also want to tell you concerning the Parsha class, it doesn't affect the Parsha, but it does affect the Haftorah. So what happens is that in the time of persecution, religious persecution, where reading the five books of Moses in public was punishable by death, our sages did not want us to lose sight of what we would have read on that week. So they instituted the Haftorah, which comes from the Book of Prophets, the Book of Scriptures, and the reason for that is because that wasn't forbidden. I guess that was seen more as literature by the enemy versus a constitution of, the Ju- of Judaism. And we always have a Haftorah that deals with a topic of that week's Torah portion. And this way, by reading the Haftorah portion, they would remember what the Torah portion would have been about for that week. The exception to the rule is that the holiday or in this, in this situation, in this instance, it's not a holiday, but the three weeks of mourning, um, the time of the year overrules the topic of the Torah portion. Thus, we're going to be reading from Jeremiah in the Haftorah, in how he warns the Jewish people that they should get their act together because if not, God has said that there will be destruction. And God willing, we will have a class on this concept itself, exile and, and destruction. But for this week, I'm going to stick to the Torah portion. So, with all that said, This week's Torah portion is a continuation of last week's Torah portion, which is why it doesn't begin with a new chapter. By the way, surprise, surprise, the chapters, the numbers, the division of the chapters and the verse numbers, not the verses itself, were actually not instituted by Jewish, by Jewish people and Judaism. It was actually instituted by those who translated the the Torah um, from the uh, Gentiles and nations of the world, nevertheless, we have embraced it and we and we use it um, and by the way there 's a couple of things in Judaism that way. Um, the names of the Jewish calendar months, if you look at the Torah they 're referred to by numbers. The names were not given by Jewish people, but they were actually embraced by the Jewish people to the point where we actually learn out deep teachings and and acronyms for verses from the from the from the um, names of the months. But I keep on digressing. I just wanted to share with you, you'll notice that this week's Torah portion starts with verse number 10 because it is a connection to last week's Torah portion. So let's briefly recap what happened in last week's, the second Torah portion of last week so that we can see how this Torah portion is starting. So Balak, the king of the Moabites, hires Bilaam, um, to curse the Jewish people, he had a personal story where he know, he knew that the words of of Bilam, whether it be curses or blessings, take place. So he hired Bilam, and Bilam, God tells him that you will only be able to say that which I place in your mouth, and because of that, Bilam ends up blessing the Jewish people three times instead of cursing them. Balak tells him that you've got to leave. That's not what I asked you to do. So he then goes ahead and tells Balak about the end of days. And and according to one of the Rebbe's teachings, the reason he did that was to let him know, you hired me to make sure they're not going to conquer you today. You should know that the Jews will not be conquering uh, Moab today. It will be in the end of days. With that being said, he gives Balak a a goodbye gift. And he tells them, I was not able to curse the Jewish people for you, but I will tell you how to impact them that God's anger will will actually kill some of them. And he tells them that the God of this people has, he despises immorality, sexual immorality, and he despises Idolatry. Thus, if you can lead the Jewish people into acts of lewdness together with idolatry, God, with His anger, will cause a negative impact upon the people. And Bal and uh, Mo and uh, Boloch, the king of Moab, heeds his advice of Balak of Bilam and sends down his girls. And the Talmud tells us it's interesting. In the Talmud Sanhedrin tells us. How, how they set it up because the Jewish people used to do buying and selling with their countries they were next to. They were very wealthy. So they set up the young girls and, and, and to see like they're giving them a, a uh, great deal and there's no way to seduce a Jewish man any way better than giving him a good deal. And from there, they started building a relationship. From there, it got into sexual relationship and from there it got into idolatry. The outcome was that 24,000 Jewish people were affected by this and died in a plague of anger for, by God for doing this. Now, the climax of the story is that I guess the tribe of Shimon was situated where the Moabites' country was, and thus they suffered a lot And they went to one of their princes, one of their leaders and said, really, you know, I know you're a holy man and I know you're busy studying Torah, praying and doing spiritual stuff, but your people are dying out there. What are you doing to help us? So in an act of self-sacrifice to reach a climax in which this would have to end one way or another way, he, the prince of the tribe of Shimon, a prince of the tribe of Shimon took a princess from the house of Moab, and he brought her before, um, before the um, he brought her before Moses and asked Moses. I'm sorry, it wasn't the Moabite; it was a Midianite. He and then you soon see why. And he goes ahead and he asks Moses, "Am I allowed to live, marry this woman? Yes or no?" And Moses says, "No." He says, "Really? Then who gave you the authority?" and the permission to marry a Midianite for you married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, which was a Midianite. And Moses actually was left in silence. And again, just use mystical teachings because he could have given answers, but there's reasons why he didn't. And at that point, the entire Jewish congregation, Kolat and Yisrael, were left in tears saying, look, the immorality has reached the highest echelons of spirituality and this is not going to bore well for us. Pinchas, who was the nephew, a great nephew of Moses, he told Moses, he turned around and of course, when you talk to a teacher, you have to do it respectful question-wise rather than corrective-wise. And he said, Master, Have you not taught us that in such a case, the zealot may take the matter in his own hand and kill the perpetrator? And Moses answered him with the famous saying that you read the king's proclamation, you were meant to fulfill it. And Pinchas goes and puts a spear while they're cohabitating through both of them. And at that point, now please, we turn to our Torah portion, in which it begins by saying, Pinchas, the son of Allah, the son of Aaron, the Kohen, has brought back, re- re- sued, has, has stopped my wrath from upon the Jewish people by acting in zealousness. So it is an act of zealousness here which brought the entire plague to an end. Now, I want to just share with you a vart that I believe I heard it in the name of the, um, uh, uh, oh, it starts with a Kotsker. I believe that this word is from the Holy Kotsker Rebbe. There is a famous teaching that Pinchas and Elijah are one and the same soul. It's a reincarnation. Elijah had to take care of idolatry on Mount Carmel. Pinchas had to take care of idolatry over here in the desert. Elazar ends, uh, Eliyahu ends up being a leader, and Pinchas does not end up becoming a leader. And the Kotz said that the reason is that Elijah brought an end to idolatry through peaceful ways, while Pinchas brought an end to idolatry through violent ways. And thus, Pinchas could not become a leader of the Jewish people while his reincarnation, Elijah, was. I, I was very touched when I heard that teaching, and I love sharing it when I, when I talk about this story in the Parsha. Now, you, I, you probably don't have a Chomish in front of you, but I want to share with you that if you did have a, a, a Chomish or a Sefer Torah, you would see that in the third verse it says, and hence i said that i behold i will i gave to him the covenant of peace now in the word peace the word shalom shin lamet, vav mem the third letter the vav is actually cracked now it's not it's not cracked to a point where the torah is not kosher because hypothetically speaking We have three size letters in the Torah. Most of them is the Benoni, the average. We have those that are large, and we have those that are small. And thus, we break the leg of the Vav in a way that it does not become a Yud, but remains a mini Vav. Now, I will tell you, clearly I know stories that are funny, that people took out the Torah, started reading, and said, whoa, 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 we got to change Torahs. It's cracked. The letter's cracked. It's not kosher. And I actually know a story where they took out three Seba Torahs and they started believing that there's something do, 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 do. do. All the letters are not kosher because of the same, all the Torahs are not kosher because of the same letter. It's there purposely. And it's there purposely until Mashiach comes because the covenant of peace is not complete. Until Mashiach comes. Thus, it's a cracked valve. Now, there's one more thing I have to share with you a little backstory. And the backstory is that when God told Moses that he should make his brother the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, and he should make his children the, the simple Kohanim, and then it goes on to say concerning the grandchildren. It talks futuristic. And all the grandchildren that will be born, which created for Pinchas a very interesting situation. Pinchas was the only grandson that already was born when God told this to Moses. Thus, his father, his brothers, and his nephews were all Kohanim, but he was not a Kohen. He remained a Levite. Now you'll understand why in this week's Torah portion, God says in verse 13, that I make him now, I give him the covenant of a Kohen. You may say that throughout the history of Kohanim, this was the only Kohen who earned being a Kohen. None of the others earned it. God gave it to them. But be it as it may be from that day on, he and his children became kohanim the next story in the torah portion is that god tells moses to avenge what the midianites did to the jewish people and there was there was a war and they did they did uh, avenge um, what what the the um, indecency of what the, Mo- the midianites did to them right after that god starts telling tells moses to once again count the jewish people Our sages give us a very simple explanation, saying that there was a shepherd who loved his flock. And after a wolf broke into the flock and killed some of the sheep, he had his men recount the sheep because of how precious each and every one was to him. So too God told Moses, because the Midianites, the Moabites, they broke into the flock and they took the lives of 24,000 of them, please recount the flock who are so important to me. Now, the next topic, which we're going to talk about, you know, after I go through the Torah portion, I always try to focus on one topic, um, just to make it a little clearer and more, uh, you know, connected to us in our modern day situation. And this is that God told Moses on how the Jewish how the Jewish people were to divide the land of Israel. And you'll notice over here that there are three things that are simultaneously taking place. One is that there was a lottery system. One is that there was the logic that went on between the population of the tribe and the size of the land that they got. And one was prophecy by, by, from the word of God. And all these three things miraculously always aligned itself to always have the same results. And thus the land of Israel was given to the Jewish people by Moses, God, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Moses telling them clearly how to go about it. By the way, for those who are interested in the history, it took seven years to conquer the land and seven years to settle the land. Now... Um, after, he get, after God tells Moses about conquering the land and that followed the census of how many each tribe had, we then count the tribe of Levi because the tribe of Levi does not get a portion in the land. And then God points out something very interesting. God points out that all the people in the times of the, uh, those who left Egypt would not enter into the land of Israel because of what happened with the spies. They forfeited it, and it would be their children that would enter into the land of Israel. The exception was Kalev and Yehoshua, the two spies that did not speak negatively um, with this very well, the tribe of Levi, which none of them participated in, in this whole sin. Now, I want to share with you why it's important another backstory before we go to the next story of how five daughters came to Moses. The people who left Egypt did not get the land of Israel, it was the people who entered into the land of Israel that physically received the land of Israel however it was the people that left egypt that inherited the land now let's not play semantics and let's understand practically what's the difference the difference is that each tribe broke down to families each family broke down to family members we do not count the number of families of the new generation that's going into Israel, rather we divide the land by the numbers of the families that left Egypt. Which led to an interesting scenario where there was a man by the name of Tzalafkot who had no sons, only had five daughters. The land was divided by the male side and thus, this man, Slavchad, who died in the desert, would not end up having his portion because the girls, will be, his daughters would be marrying and they would have their portion that their husband received. But his portion would go uninherited. Thus they came to Moses and said, Our father, Slavchad, has no sons. He has only us, and thus, we want to inherit his portion. His legacy in the land of Israel should not go lost. And Moses tells them that, wait, and I will ask God what to do. And it's at this point where God gives the laws of inheritance, and God tells Moses to give the land to the daughters of of um, of Slavkhod. Now, I want to share with you something very important. Laws of inheritance. As long as I'm alive, the money is mine and I may give it to whoever I want. The moment I die, the money is not mine to bequeath to anyone. Even if I wrote that I wanted it to be bequeathed in a specific way during my lifetime. Because I have lost control over my money the moment I die, and thus the Torah tells you how inheritance has to work. Now, inheritance works that. If there's sons and daughters, only the sons inherit. And the understanding of the Torah, as it was taught to me, is simply because the daughters will marry into other tribes. The daughters will marry into husbands that will inherit their parents. And thus, everyone will be taken care of. And thus the Torah commands the sons who will inherit their father to take care of the mother and to take care of the unwedded daughters. So much so that our sages learn out in the Gemara concerning the laws of inheritance. If there was not enough inheritance to support the boys and the unmarried girls, the, the inheritance feeds the unmarried girls and the boys are told to go out and work now with this being said in modern day we don't like the implication of these laws sorry but that's just the way it works we always try a to make sure that our wife has everything and doesn't need the compassion or goodness of the children. I can personally tell you horror stories when a mother had to depend upon a child. And also, we want all our children, male and females, to inherit equally. But it's not our choice. Came along a man in London who was a barrister in the civil court, and he was a judge, a shofet, a dying in the Jewish court. He wrote some books, marvelous. His name was Diane Grunfeld. The last book he wrote was Laws of Inheritance, and he was struggling with this issue. So I just want to share with you what he concluded, and it's something that's followed by Jewish people in communities, and it's a shame those who don't make sure to do this meaning that their last act as they leave this world is not, a, is not in accordance to Torah. The solution is extremely simple. The solution is that you do not write a will that bequeaths, rather you write a document, a will, which says that I hereby retroactively one hour prior to my death Give as a gift, and then you list what you want to whom it should go. You cannot use the word bequeathed inheritance. You have to use the word gift. You cannot say it should happen the moment after you die. Rather, you're saying in a valid contract, according to Jewish law, that it is being given as a gift retroactively one hour before the person dies now i do want to share that when it comes to a woman leaving inheritance for her children a lot of the laws the laws of a firstborn son so forth and so on do not apply now with this being said and uh, the loophole which allows us to be able to take care of all our children, our spouse if we have, or whatever we want. I want to just tell you what the biblical law of inheritance is. The rule of thumb is it goes down, up, down, up. Let's see how this works. So Johnny dies. Johnny has sons and daughters. They go to the sons. And if Johnny has... Only daughters, they go to the daughters. If Johnny has no children, they go. The money is inherited by the father. If the father is not alive, it's inherited by the brothers. Not as inherited by the brothers, but as inherited by the father who's then inherited by all his sons. And that's the way it keeps them going up and down. Okay? So... If Johnny has no children because they all died, but he has grandchildren, the dead children inherited their father to their children. But if there is no offspring coming from the person, then you go up, down, up, down, up, down. Okay? And so it is. By the way, in the laws, we actually take it all the way back to the 12 sons of Jacob. We don't take it further than that, and the reason is because we were promised that no one of the tribes will be completely eradicated. But in the law it says, keep on going up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, all the way to the 12 brothers. Okay, and obviously we need to discuss, but not here, what are the laws with the convert? How does that happen? You know, the up-down, how does it work? The father's not Jewish, but but he does have maybe Jewish children. And there's laws concerning that. Now, with that being said, I just want to take you further into the Torah portion. Now that we got into the laws of inheritance, God tells Moses that he needs to prepare for his passing because he hit the rock instead of talking to the rock, and therefore it's time for the Jews to go into Israel, and he cannot go into Israel. At that point, Moses asks of God, can you please appoint a successor? And God tells Moses that your student Joshua, anoint him, appoint him, ordain him, he shall be the one that will take over as your successor. So, obviously, our sages say that Moses, you know, as a father, he had two sons. And I want to just point out, I've asked some rabbis, you know, it is amazing that you hear nothing about Moses' sons other than their birth and their circumcision throughout the entire Torah. Unlike Aaron, which is consistently working with his sons as kohanim in the tabernacle we know nothing of Moses' sons and it's just interesting we only do know that his father-in-law yisro will eventually have offsprings that were actually converted and became great sages that taught torah in israel by the way you may not know this but moses's nephew the son of Aaron, al also married a daughter of Yisro. But be it as it may, God tells Moses, for you, it will not go to your children, it will go to your student. However, your student will not be able to function without your nephew, which is the high priest. Thus, there's also that aspect of it. After this, the rest of the Torah portion talks about the, hot, the sacrifices, but unlike Leviticus, it doesn't talk about individual sacrifices or scenario sacrifices, such as sin offerings, guilt offerings, but communal sacrifices. The one that has to be brought every day, morning and evening, the one that's brought on Shabbat, the one that's brought on Rosh Chodesh, and the one that's brought on all the holidays. By the way, every single holiday of the year, The last reading, the mafter, is done in a second Sefer Torah, and it's from this week's Torah portion, reading the sacrifices of that specific holiday. I will just um, finish the Torah review, the portion review, by saying, why did all of a sudden sacrifices come into here? And our sages tell us as follows. Our sages tell us that... God told Moses, and it gives a parable. The queen, before she died, told the king, I want you to take care of our children. And the king answers back to the dying queen, You're telling me that I should take care of them. Tell them they should take care of me. And thus, and there's huge mystical insights why specifically the sacrifices. But that's what God was telling Moses. You're telling me to make sure they have a leader and they'll be taken care of. Tell them they should keep up with their sacrifices, which quote unquote feeds me. Okay, with that being the case, I want to talk about a concept of the Torah portion. I put this into the weekly email and connecting it with the time. So it's interesting to know that 17 generations ago, about 17 generations ago, there lived a great Kabbalist by the name of Rabbi Isaiah Halevi Horowitz, who wrote a, an amazing book called Shnei Luchot Habrit. And if you take the letters of, those, of that book and you make an acronym out of it, you have the word Shlach. He is actually known not by his name. He is known by the Shlach, He is from the few people throughout the history, of the Jewish people, that we do not say his name without also using the title HaKadosh, the sacred one. So thus we say the Shlo HaKadosh. Now, the Shlo HaKadosh in his teachings on Hanukkah says that there are holidays that are not in the Torah because they happen way past the time Of Moses in the desert for example the story of Hanukkah he says nevertheless divine providence has set it up that every single holiday is connected to the Torah portion that we read on the week that that holiday happens and so too it is not only with a joyous holiday but also with a commemoration of mourning thus I actually pondered upon this question. Why is it that on the week that we fast and mourn the breaching of the walls of Jerusalem, the three weeks of mourning, the destruction of the Holy Temple, the Jewish people being led out of Israel into exile, why is it that on that Torah portion Divine Providence has set up that we should read about how we get and divide and inherit the land of Israel. It seems to be a dichotomy. To understand this, I want to take you to the first Rashi on the entire Torah. So Rashi, a great, most famous and classic commentary studied by all. He lived in old France. His name is Rav Shlomo Yitzchaki. And he writes on the first Torah portion, he quotes it from a sage on Barab Yitzchak, But he says as follows, and by the way, the Amarav Yitzchak that he quotes, because Rashi usually doesn't quote names uh, um, of of concepts that he quotes, but they say that that also was a hinting to himself because his name was also, his name was of Shlomo, but Yitzchaki. But anyway, Amarav Yitzchak, he says like this, the Torah is primarily a book of mitzvot. The Torah is here to teach us that which we should do and we should not do. The, 300, the 365 prohibitions, the 248 um, positive ordinances. So therefore, why would the Torah start and go through a book and a half of history instead of starting with the first mitzvah of the new moon? Why did it begin with the creation of the world. And then an answer he says, and he, he quotes a verse in chapter 106, verse 11 of the book of Psalms. And he says over there, Koyach the strength of his actions, referring to the creation of the world, he tells his people. And why? Because when they inherit the land of Israel, and the nations are going to accuse them of being thieves, they will answer the nations of the world that it is God who created the world. He gave it to the nations that he wanted to give it to for 26 generations. On the 27th generation, he took it from them and gave it to us. Now, the Rebbe of blessed memory questions this Rashi. And he says... Obviously, not only a Rashi Rashi, he's quoting it as I said, but he questions why would the nations of the world accuse us of thievery when every nation conquered their land? There is no one who can say, My people lived here since Noah left the ark. That's not happening. How would America accuse the Jewish people of stealing Israel when? Their origin is the Spaniards coming here, stealing it from the natives, and then them, through war, breaking away from from England and and, and Spain. I mean, who can call us thieves? It is the way of the world, up to recent, it was the way of the world that you went to war, you conquered, and it became yours. So, what is Rashi saying? No, they're going to tell you you stole the land. We didn't steal the land. We conquered it fear and square as every other nation conquered their land, fair and square. Thus, the Rebbe explains what Rashi is really saying here. The nations of the world do not call us thieves for conquering Israel In the times that we lived in Israel, calling it our land. But because we won the land fear and square through war, according to that logic, we lost the land fear and square through war. Thus they're saying, You're thieves. For 2,000 years, you're claiming that this land is Eretz Yisrael. It's your land. No, it's not. You are stealing from those who conquered you, conquered your land, and you were vanquished. Thus, the the thievery that Rashi is talking about, that the nations of the world are going to accuse us, is not our ownership over Israel when we conquered and lived on the land of Israel, but rather specifically for the two millenniums that we were not on Israel, and nevertheless, we continuously pray about Eretz Yisrael, the land of the Jews. The answer to this is that we have no answer other than we didn't own the land because we conquered it we conquered it because we owned it and we owned it because god who created the world gave it for 26 generations to the nations that were there in the 27th generation he took it from them and gave it to us now when god Takes something and gives it to someone, it becomes, in this case, Nahalat Olam, an eternal heritage. Thus, regardless of whether we're on the land, regardless whether we have governance under the land, regardless of whether we're subject to the opinions of of countries, sieges of other, and terrorism. and and all of that, that does not touch ever the ownership that the Jewish people eternally have over the land of Israel for no other reason that God gave us this land as an eternal heritage. And now I want to connect it to what's going to take place tomorrow. It is not human to mourn something that you lost 2,000 years ago. It's just not. And therefore, this entire mourning and this entire three-week period and this entire fasting makes no sense unless we look into this week's Torah portion and we realize we're not mourning what was taken away from us 2,000 years ago. We are mourning that which belongs to us today. And we see the present situation of the land of Israel. That is why specifically in this week's Torah portion, and by the way, it's divided into the fourth Reading, which we learn today, the day before tomorrow when we will begin fasting and mourning, to remember we are not mourning a 2,000-year loss that we cannot get over, but rather we're mourning that which was given to us today belongs to us today, and yet we don't have true sovereigns and true Jewish life on our Holy Land. Thus, we have the connection between the Torah portion, speaking of precisely our inheritance of the land, with what's taking place this week, which is the mourning over the land. And now I will unmute all. I think I unmuted all. Oh, okay. I guess you people have the choice to... uh Remain muted or unmute. but anyway, we're here. We're here. To have this we're here. Hello, hello. Yes. No. Oh, get yes. on. <laughs> what? Tell me. What? 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 what, what I don't understand the end. What are we mourning for? The destruction? For the taking out for us? Oh, they put us in Galut. What? What? What's all this about? There's uh, many. Uh, Many things are involved in you. So, Guido, let, let me share an example, right? Yeah. So, a king is into exile. Yeah. So, one perspective is... Okay, take care, Arnold. One perspective is that, okay, whatever, the kingdom was taken away. And if that be the case, then eventually the family, the lineage, has to get over it. Another way to understand is, no, this land belongs to this king. And thus the king is presently, continuously, mourning and thinking about his land. What I'm trying to say is, that being that the land of israel has never stopped being the land of israel we are not mourning a historic event of 2000 years ago but a present situation presently we have a land presently we have a capital and presently we are not free to live Peacefully protected in accordance with Judaism in this land that belongs to us today including what's going on on Temple Mount okay so the, the question is why why he making a-